Alex King, welcome back to Investing Experts. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you, Rena. Always a pleasure. Thanks for the uh, repeat invite. Much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to have you back. You're talking tech with us. You've talked tech at Sestrian Capital Research, and he runs Growth Investor Pro, which is his investing group on Seeking Alpha. I'm interested how you're looking at the market. Last time we were kind of green shoots everywhere, and now we just had Julian Lin talking to investors about how it's not a bubble. So you were also talking about the volatility that's inherent in, in this part of the market. I'm interested how you're looking at the market in general and then vis-a-vis tech. Yeah, I'm happy to talk it through. Okay, so and we run a, a service called Growth Investor Pro uh, here on Seeking Alpha. And one of the things we do is we cover tech stocks, as the name suggests, but we also do a ton of market index work. If you zoom out, I would say, Rena, that you know we saw a, a bottom in the market around this time last year. We've had a really strong bull market all year, certainly in the S&P and, and the NASDAQ, and it's been a, a hated bull market. You know, People have written it off as a, 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 you know, a bear market rally or this or that, or it's not real. And of course, none of that matters. You know, the only thing that matters is price and price has shot up, particularly in the NASDAQ. Most forms of technical analysis, I think, will tell you that this rally probably has some way to go. And that doesn't mean it's going to go up every day. You know, as we speak now, the market's off a bit and the NASDAQ's down about a point and a quarter. But most forms of, again, technical analysis will say there's some way to go yet. And the way we look at it in our work is we happen to use Elliott Wave and Fibonacci level analysis, but obviously there's, there's many different lenses you can use. And our base case says that there's a good way to go yet in the in the NASDAQ. If we pick the QQQ uh, as a proxy, so that's the, uh, the QQQ ETF that tracks the NASDAQ 100, then our base case says that the QQQ could reach somewhere between maybe 418 and 463, something like that, uh, before rolling over and selling off. And, and that's not any kind of Nostradamus thing. It's just standard technical analysis, which is just pattern recognition, as everyone knows. So it could be right, could be wrong. Who knows? It's just pattern recognition. Um, and we've been tracking that sort of five wave up move that might terminate there for a few years now. It's been a pretty righteous chart thus far. And the, the big question that we're asking ourselves right now is not so much, you know, is it going to dump tomorrow and then we're just going to revisit the 2022 lows and it's going to sell off below that, which is what the majority of people seem to think. Our question is, okay, is our base case bullish enough? Because on a chart, and you know, this is not a complicated chart, but it, it basically starts at the 2018 lows, which is the last time monetary policy was reversed from tightening to loosening. You then get you know a run-up pre-COVID crisis, a run-down into the crisis, a big run-up at the end of 2021, a sell-off into the rate hike cycle, bounces in Q4, 22, and then a run-up since then. And so the question is, is that right? Is it going to terminate uh, between, yeah, again, 418 or 463 on the QQQ? And the equivalent chart on the, the SPY uh, would be something like a termination in a uh, similar range of 533 to 583. And is that right? So that would assume there's a bit more run-up to go, and then we're going to hit some sort of you know, capital E event. And then dump because at the end of that sort of five wave cycle, you would expect a big sell off. I mean, anything can happen, but my instinct is that's not what's going to happen. My instinct is is we're going to see a continued run up in markets through twenty four, certainly up until the presidential election, and um, and we'll see what happens after that. 
and if if that happens, then there is a possibility that actually the the low that you should be measuring from is the COVID crisis low. Um, and if you measure from that low again using you know many technical analysis methods, but certainly ours, that then it says that actually the Nasdaq and the S and P could run up quite a long way from here. You know numbers that sound silly right now. So if I looked at the QQQ and I took our bull case and it is our bullish case, you'd say it could run up to six fifty. But that sounds silly now. There's not really much point saying that. But then the start of large bull markets, if you come up with any price targets, it always sounds silly at the time. So the best thing to do is see how it goes. So the work for us is, again, in the NASDAQ, look at what happens when it gets into the low 400s on the QQQ. If there's strength through there, if it's really powering up, well, then I think we'll think, well, our base case is a bit too visible. And if it's hard going and it's you know faltering and thinking about turning over and hitting resistance levels, then I think we'll think, okay, you know, the cycle's done, and then we're back into a bear market sometime next year, probably. And and I don't have uh, a religious opinion on that. I think we'll just let the market tell us what it's going to do. You know, you know if the market's going to dump, and you know how you know it because it starts dumping. You know, you don't have to be any kind of rocket scientist here; it tells you. So that's a long answer, but but in essence, I think base case expectation here is it's going to run up some more. And and if I look at where could we be wrong, I, I think where we could be wrong is, and what I'm most concerned about is you know, turning to sell too soon. I'm not concerned about the market. The bottom's going to fall out of the market tomorrow and oh dear, I didn't sell anything because you always get time to hedge or to sell. My concern is that we, we're we too cautious and in, you know, my own personal holdings and our callings in, the, in our research, we're too bearish and we say, okay, time to step aside and the market keeps on running up because that's what's happened to an awful lot of people since this time last year. Um, they didn't believe that the bull market was real and they've just cost themselves a ton of money as a result needlessly. Um, whereas if they just watched the market and reacted as opposed to try and predict it, they'd have done much better. We, we do two kinds of analysis. We do technical analysis, we do fundamental analysis, and never the twain shall meet. If they coincide, it's you know it's quite interesting and it reinforces the one and the other. But, but for price analysis, we start with technical analysis. From a technical analysis perspective, we use this Elliott Wave and Fibonacci method. There's nothing revolutionary about it. Lots of people use it. Many folks on Seeking Alpha use it. But if I just talk you through it, starting from the 2018 lows, as I just mentioned, suggests that we're now in a wave five up. That's a final, you know, a final run up before a big sell off. But it doesn't, it doesn't feel to me that that's true because yeah, the economy's US economy is in pretty good shape. Inflation's coming down. It's unlikely rates are going to go up. They might come down. Um, consumers in good health, you know, poor people aren't in good health, but they never are. Rich people are in very good health, and rich people drive the market. Poor people don't. It's not maybe not, not, may not be nice, but it's true. Um, and it doesn't feel like that technical analysis calling for a, a rollover soon is right. But if you start those charts, the same method, the same Elliott Wave and Fibonacci charts from the COVID lows, then the sell-off in 2022 looks like what's called a wave two down, right? So basically a, a big correction after an initial run-up. Whereas if you start at 2018, it looks like a wave four down, which is a final sell-off before the final run-up. Now, the, the 2022 sell-off was so deep in both the NASDAQ and the S&P that it's a perfectly righteous wave two, which tends to be pretty deep. Um, and so what that might mean, maybe, is that, the S&P and the NASDAQ are currently in a wave three up. And if so, wave threes are really powerful and go a lot longer and a lot further and a lot further up than anyone expects them to. And, and so it's on purely technicals. So if you want to get into some very, very boring detail, and it is boring, 
Um, if we look at the base case on QQQ, then 2022, more or less all the year, was a 0.618 retrace from the wave three high struck in the end of 21. That's if you start at the 2018 lows. I appreciate this is incredibly boring. Whereas if you start at the COVID lows, you know, March 2020, and you say that the move up to the end of 21 was a wave one, then um, 2022 was a 0.618 retrace of that move, which again is a perfectly valid wave two. So there's every chance, I think, that we're in a wave three right now, not a wave five. And when that becomes not boring is because if it's a wave five, well, it's going to roll over soon and sell. And we all need to be on our toes and ready for that. But if it's a wave three, it's got a ton of, a ton of time to go. And the, the mistake people will make is getting out too soon. And that's that, that is just giving away money for absolutely no reason. And so th that's why I think it, because the chart pattern says it. And if you look, you know, just look outside the window for a moment, does it look like, does it look and feel like 2021 when a, you know, it's pretty obvious a big sell was coming at the end of that year. It doesn't look and feel like that. It looks like the early innings of a bull market, I think. And so that's why I think that. So one, technical analysis, the chart says that that might be the case. And two, look outside the window, it doesn't look like the end of days. Depending on which window you're looking out of. But if you're rich and you're looking out the window, what's not to like? And rich people drive the market. For those who it isn't boring for, for those interested in a deeper dive into the charts, should they just write you? Should they look at Sestri and Capital? What's their best way if people are looking? I know some people write us afterwards and like, well, let me dig into the charts. How do they get these charts? How do they chew it up with you even more? So if they look, the, the, the best article they can read of ours on this topic, it's free, uh, is, is on the Seeking Alpha site, and it's called The Long Bull Market to Come. So The Long Bull Market to Come. And that isn't an article that goes, you know, it's all going to go up and to the right forever. It's an article that considers the question. And it includes the two charts that I've just talked through, the, 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 the sort of the base case and, and, and the bull case. And it's in there. And, and if people want to discuss that, you know, post comments to the article. We read them all. We do our best to respond really quickly. We really welcome comments, input, all of that. The, the last thing we do here is work on a, you know, sort of oracle basis. Um, we figure out that there's a, there's a, there are a ton of smart people that use the Seeking Alpha site. It's one of the reasons we love publishing here. And we really love getting comments and feedback and questions. That they make us think all the time. And so challenging anything we might have put in an article, brilliant, do it. I mean, call us names if you like, but you probably won't get a sensible response if you give us a you know, silly comment. But if you get a sensible comment, we'll always think about it and respond. And we might agree with you or not, but we, we love getting the comments. That long bull market to come, that's the one to read. And if you just go to our profile on um, on Seeking Alpha, you can find it there. We'll include a link to it in the show notes. And yeah, I would say those in the know, those who have spent more than a few minutes on uh, Seeking Alpha know that the comment stream is typically one of the best places to find uh, insight and, and get a deeper dive and more of a conversation with uh with the analysts. So full supporter of that process. Last time you were on, you were talking, well, the past couple times you were on, you've been talking about Intel. And that's also something that you've been writing about, a stock that you've been writing about. I'm curious where your thoughts are on Intel in general. Yeah. So um, this was a, a stock that we, you know, we were really bullish on last time we spoke. And if, if you look at our I'm pretty sure we've got public coverage of it on the Seeking Alpha site, but, but just in case anyone can't reach that, we had it at Accumulate, which is you know buy in our world, between twenty four dollars and thirty four dollars a stock earlier in the year, and um, we're now at it's down a bit today. We're at forty two and a bit today, and it's run up really strongly. Um, we, we remain house view bullish on Intel. We rate it a hold right now. 
because we think the buying opportunity was again 24 to 34 with a stop at 22 or below and um you know at this point obviously the risk reward isn't as good but if you'd bought in that zone you know even if you bought at 34 you're a good you know nearly 30 percent up right now guess is we see a, a bit of weakness in intel uh, over the next few weeks just letting off steam after a, a huge run up and a fast run up uh but i remain bullish on the company and, and the reason for that is that the the original logic which is this reshoring of semiconductor manufacturing back to the us and intel being the only credible player of any scale in the us uh, that's us owned or the us headquartered flag carrier for the us you know however you want to call it that remains true um new ceo intel pat gelsinger i think is doing a very good job it's a difficult difficult job it's uh, there's many difficulties at the company a company that size you know you can't turn that around quickly it's not possible and you're going to hit some snags uh, along the way but good jobs being done. The, the financials at Intel are still, you know, pretty awful, um, but they're starting to get less bad. And so with corporate turnarounds, it never goes from awful to great in a couple of quarters. It goes awful, more awful, which is when usually a new CEO arrives. And if they've got any sense, they go around collecting all the bad stuff, bad news, and then hurl it all out in one, maybe two earnings reports. Uh, issue a few write-downs, give a few profit warnings, churn the executive team to the, to the extent they can, and do all the you know bad stuff over the course of three to six months. And then it starts to get less bad um, than it was, as in the bad stuff is getting worse more slowly. And then you start to see a turnaround. And I think we're sort of approaching the point at Intel where we'll probably start to see bad stuff bottoming and things start to pick up. And you know, nothing in the macro environment has changed. You know, there's uh, something of a rapprochement, I would say, between uh, the US and China. Um, but, you know, the fact is you have a big strategic competition over the next 50 years about who can make the most advanced semiconductors the most quickly and cheaply. And that competition is between, you know, the US and uh, Taiwan, uh, which plays host, as you know, to TSMC uh, and China. And um, those are the players. There's only three players that, that count. And I would be surprised if the US was going to lose that war. Uh, and so Intel is the stock to to ride if you want to ride that uh, that tension. Um, so we remain bullish on Intel. I think the, the risk reward is, is, is worsened because the price has gone up, nothing to do with the company. So it's a, a substantial personal holding of mine. It's one of the bigger allocations I have. It's done really, really well this year. I've considered trimming it a little bit a couple of weeks ago, decided against it. So I'm just going to hold it for a while and see how far we can go. Another, speaking of kind of a, a, a subsector of the tech sector, um, an obvious one is AI and all the mania it's seen in the, this past year. Yeah. What would you advise investors in terms of trying to take advantage of that? Is it worth getting into Microsoft, NVIDIA, Palantir is is a stock that's bandied about a lot. It's a favorite um, from a few analysts on, on this podcast. Curious your thoughts on the bigger players and then just the general approach to that part of the sector. Yeah, sure. Um, I think the first thing to say is, well, the first thing to say, of course, is we don't give any advice, but you know, we're going to do that. So, so I shan't be giving any advice. But the, the first thing to say about AI is, it, it, what it isn't is a bubble. You know, obviously, some of the stock prices have rocketed uh, along with that AI narrative, but but AI in and of itself isn't a bubble. And why I say that is because 
you know, call it what you like, AI, large language models, um, parallel compute, what, you know, pick a, a name. What's happening here is a, a, a CapEx refresh cycle in the data center and beyond. So about every decade, plus or minus, you see this in tech. So in the, you know, mid, late 90s, enterprise size companies woke up and went, well, we haven't got a website, or if we have, it's, it looks like a brochure. We kind of need one. We better find out why we need one and what, what it needs to do. And oh dear, none of our IT systems can run this. Okay, we're gonna have to spend a lot of money on IT. Um, and they did. And then, you know, that, that that those assets were depreciated over the next four or five years and became extremely profitable in the 2004, 2005 period onwards. It's 2010 and everyone suddenly requires the internet now to actually work. And so more people had broadband connections to their home and offices, more consumer activities were expected to be conducted online. People were getting iPhones in 07, which pushed up bandwidth requirements on the fixed line network, the backbone network massively. And so another CapEx refresh cycle came around the 2010-2012 period. And that, that coincided with the rise of social, huge you know, data center growth off the back of Facebook and other social media sites. And we're there again. So you know, we're another decade-ish on. And if you think about the improvements in and increases in compute power that arises from having this colossal collection of parallel uh, processing units in the data center, well, what that's going to need next, what, what has to happen next, is improved networking. Because the only way to get the output from that you know, massively upgraded compute plant that's in the core of the network, the only way to get that to people's devices is a network that is faster, lower latency, lower jitter, higher throughput, all those things. And so what I expect us to see now is a, a, a network CapEx refresh. So that means in, in data center networking, the interlinks at that point, uh, the wide area network, that means you know uh, all the fiber that's run by AT&T, Verizon, all the smaller players, the in-office network, people's home Wi-Fi networks, the security, the, the endpoint devices. You know, so if you're running a, a machine now at home that's two, three, four years old, it's going to start creaking because the software requirements uh, and the software demands upon the system are, are increasing. So this isn't some bubble dreamed up to shift NVIDIA stock, although clearly that's been a, a beneficiary. It's a real thing. And the, the, the CapEx spending, I think, is going to percolate way, way, way down through the, the tech value chain. It's only really just started, in my opinion. Now, stocks. Um, we called NVIDIA as an accumulate opportunity between 100 and 150. Again, there's a public article on Seeking Alpha doing that last year. Um, and it, it, you know, it fair rocketed out of that zone. Uh, it's hit some resistance right now, but it shot up from 150 to you know, almost 500 really quickly. And I don't think that that's a bubble. Do I think that's going to sell off a bit? Yeah, probably uh, before another move higher. But I think that um, if you look at the fundamentals of Nvidia, it's actually not—it's not a particularly expensive stock on the basis of you know a cash flow multiple given the growth in cash flows. You know you, this thing is growing at a percentage rate that's just incredible for the size of business it is. That's been the you know obviously the stock to to, to back in this area. Now of course there are you know smaller cap tickers that. You know, C three AI, you know, a, a bunch of other things that happen to have shot up. But if you look at actual real businesses as opposed to speculative stocks, Nvidia's clearly been the one to to be in to benefit from that. There's there's plenty of others. I think if you want to benefit from AI, 
the, the number one thing you can do is be exposed to tech because AI will drive, in my opinion, again, CapEx flushing all the way through the tech value chain. So frankly, being in the NASDAQ, will that you, you are exposed to AI by doing that. So you don't have to go and pick some crazy stock that somebody tells you is, is going to be a big beneficiary from AI somehow miraculously it hasn't been, but it's about to take off tomorrow. And, you know, it's an undiscovered micro cap. You don't need to do that. You can if you want, sure. But you don't need to do that. The NASDAQ alone will give you um, any windfall benefits that flow from that AI CapEx refresh. Palantir, I mean, I own Palantir. I own a video as well. I love Palantir as a fundamental business. It's not a particularly good business. It looks like an old line enterprise software and services business, which is to say, you know, big bespoke projects, so-so um, margins and cash generation. You know, I really don't love the continued uh, founder selling every time the stock hits. Uh, the, the, you can tell the founders do technical analysis because they always sell um, as it reaches a technical high. Uh, I, I, again, I do own it. I expect it to go higher, but I, I don't think it's the you know, the North Star for AI investing at all. I think it's a it's a reasonably good enterprise software business where, you know, enthusiasm for the stock will probably drive it higher. And I'm personally positioned that way. But, you know, it, it's not a stock I would personally expect to own in five years time because, you know, it, if you've been around enterprise software, just go and look at the numbers. You know, the numbers aren't all that wonderful. It tells you that it's going to struggle to ever be a really truly high margin business it kind of can't grow that fast because the projects are difficult, bespoke, huge customers, government and enterprise customers. It, it isn't a flywheel type uh, software business of the kind that we see uh, with pure cloud businesses, for instance. So again, AI, I don't think it's a bubble. I think it's a real spending. Uh, there's continued benefit in the NASDAQ at large. Uh, Nvidia stock, I think, can keep going up. It wouldn't surprise me to see some weakness first, but I think it can keep going up. Um, but I don't think you need to get esoteric and overthink tech to get some AI exposure. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, Microsoft will give you AI exposure. You know, so will Amazon. Um, the, the key thing I think is technology for as long as I've been a, an investor has always um, been an incredibly strong performer. And that's because it's such a young industry that's growing so quickly. And so I think anyone that, that does not have tech exposure, that's probably the, the biggest risk over the long term. Obviously, you know, you can get hurt in the short term as 2022 taught everybody, but long term, I think tech, you know, it, it, it's it's incorrect, I believe, to have insufficient technology exposure. And in terms of the ETFs, you were talking about how at Sestrian, uh, you know, you guys trade it and use a lot of hedging in that in in those endeavors. For your average retail investor, you were talking about you were talking a bit about it just now um, in terms of the QQQ and getting exposure that way. Would you say in general, the adage of an ETF being better for a more passive uh, investor, let's say, is is true for the most part? I, I would, yeah. Um, I mean, if you think about the, I think there's, there's two approaches that you can take to investing. And if you, if you think back to the you know, Warren Buffett 101. What does he say that you should do if you are not prepared to learn the craft and spend literally all day pouring over company balance sheets and stock charts and whatnot? His his comment a long time ago now was, go find a low-cost S&P tracker, dollar-cost average into it, never sell. Right? That, that's his advice. And if you do that for a lifetime, then for all of recorded history since the S&P 500, 500 began, then you would be incredibly well off. You know, so if I look at our various um, 
we run various model portfolios in various services. And we always track them against that, which is DC, you know, DCA the S and P, buy the S and P, buy SPY, SPY, and do nothing. Right? Dump all your in our modeling. We go on the day the portfolio open, dump all the model, all the model money into SPY and do nothing. Collect dividends, reinvest dividends back into SPY and do nothing. And it's a pretty good investment strategy. And I would guess that the same is true of QQQ. You know, what you'll see in QQQ versus SPY is you, you'll see everything compressed on the timeline. So the x-axis on everything is forced together. And the y-axis uh, is all uh, stretched out. So the amplitude of the moves is greater in the NASDAQ, both up and down, and the timelines are compressed. So the QQQ ETF can be a scarier thing to own um, than uh, the SPY. But over the long term, I mean, it's, it's, it's only up, as you can see. I think the trick with these things is the, the Buffett point about dollar cost averaging is a really good one. So if you suddenly pile all your money into the S&P or the NASDAQ and you happen to choose the wrong time, you know, a market peak or close to it, then that's going to hurt for a long time or many years before you're even. But if you dollar cost average, if you invest, you know, X per month or quarter, you let all those dividends reinvest, then... Uh, Again, over the long term, so far, through all of history, when those instruments have existed, it's worked pretty well. And I'm not sure that's going to change in the future. It doesn't mean there can't be a bad month or year or quarter, but over the long term, I think it can work pretty well. Would you say in terms of the risks that worry you in this sector, because there's, right, as you said, there's obvious kind of growth potential in the tech sector, as as we are all well aware of at this point. But in terms of the risks present, you know, you're saying in terms of the timelines and who's to say which quarter is going to lead to which quarter. But would you say in general, the main risks that you're worried about is the timing of it and not being bullish enough at the right time? Uh, I think we're coming up to a really important decision point. So most tech stocks, you can use the NASDAQ to to aim off. And so if the NASDAQ is peaking, then probably so are most tech stocks. Obviously not perfectly um, and if the NASDAQ is bottoming, then probably so are most tech stocks. Not 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 every single one of them all the time, but you know, directionally, that's true. Uh, and so right now, if I look at our work over the last couple of years, if we if we go back to the COVID lows, we called the COVID lows really well and said basically buy everything. And that turned out to be right. So I'm pleased with that. 2021 highs, uh, we called the top and said basically. Buckle up. You know, we posted a note in our subscription service to that effect, which is this looks difficult. All the main indices are peaking. Maybe the Dow runs up a bit from here. Maybe it doesn't. But this looks, you know, bad. Um, we were a bit hasty, I would say, in calling the 2022 low. Nothing too dangerous, but a bit hasty. But but then when it did hit a bottom, we tested it, we screamed it and said this, you know, that there is a, a righteous buying opportunity now across, I mean, any number of stocks, uh, and that, that turned out to be correct. And so pleased with the calls we've made and the major market pivots. And so thing I'm concerned about now in our work is, okay, it might be that there is a major market pivot coming up. And I, I talked about it earlier, and it's in that article, the long bull market to come. So it, it might be that the, the QQQ is going to hit resistance between 418 and 463 and roll over. If that's true, then the technical pattern it's made means that the rollover that's coming is pretty brutal to the downside, most likely. So, you know, one doesn't want to get that wrong. But equally, if if that's not correct, and again, to use my boring terminology earlier, we're in a way three up, not a five up, then this thing's going to keep going and it's going to moon for some time. And you don't want to miss that either. So I think this is quite a difficult point in the market. And we are 
I'm going to say a month to maybe three months away from figuring out, well, which of those is it? It could be neither. It could obviously sell them, drop through the basement tomorrow, but I don't think that's likely. I think what's likely is either, you know, another couple of months up and then a sell-off or it just keeps going. And, and I'm, I want to make sure in our work that we don't get that wrong. Now, with the indices, um, if you invest in ETFs, you, you've you've got a different level of abstraction on your risk. If you're, if you're DCAing, then it doesn't really matter, right? You know, as long as you're not, again, putting life endangering amounts of money in with every check, then if the market sells off, well, you know, that's what gets you your lower costs. If you're running on a hedged basis, so in our work, for instance, we use TQQ on the long side and SQQ on the short side. They are um, complex instruments. They're three times levered daily instruments. They're not for the faint of heart. Um, but but the, the benefit they offer you is, you know, if you have a long position in TQQ, let's say, and you're wrong, well, you don't suddenly need to sell it and head for the hills. You can just hedge it with a, an SQQ position. And then you suspend time for a moment while you figure out, um, well, which direction is it going? In? Is it going up or down? So should I add to the long or add to the short or sell all my long or sell all my short or do something else? So I think there's two ways to solve for that sort of risk. You either take the, the, the Buffett DCA method, in which case, Short-term prices coming down can help you. It lowers your next in cost. Um, or if you run on a hedge basis, then you just need to have your wits about you about when do I deploy you know, a short hedge if the market has been running up? When do I sell that short hedge to make sure I capture the profit? And when do I dial on additional long positions to, to profit from a run-up? And you can only answer that by just watching the market every day. Mm -hmm. What would you say to investors looking at, um, you know, recent earnings in the tech sector were very positive? Uh, you know, Magnificent Seven continues to dominate the, the market returns. What would you say to investors that maybe they're missing in all the headlines or that they should be more focused on within all of the, the good news? Yeah, I had a slightly different take on earnings, to be honest. I mean, the thing that surprised me is, um, you know, the majors were all good. But if you look at, you know, some of the smaller cap tech stocks, uh, CrowdStrike, Snowflake, uh, some of the others. The thing that surprised me was I thought they printed pretty pedestrian earnings, uh, and yet the stocks jumped up anyway. Now, again, they're down a bit today, but, I mean, on earnings, CrowdStrike was up 10% on, I thought, mediocre earnings. Snowflake up 10% mediocre earnings. Salesforce, ticker CRM, up 10% on mediocre earnings. The thing, my takeaway, to be honest, was that you can print so-so numbers, and the market's going to take the stock up anyway. And that that again, plays into that uh, question of, well, how bullish of a bull market are we in? Because typically when you see that, that is a really bullish bull market because people are piling in and buying even, you know, okay earnings. Whereas in 2022, you could print fabulous earnings and it didn't matter, the stock got sold anyway. So, yeah, if you go beyond the Magnificent Seven, and their numbers are good. I mean, Microsoft is just a machine, incredible. Meta platform, similar. Yeah, I've been I've been surprised by how bullish the earnings reaction has been to not, not wonderful numbers. I suspect it's because so few people bought the low. So if you look at the volume by price uh, analysis on the S&P or the NASDAQ or Microsoft or the Dow or anything, frankly, and you look at the volumes that were traded at the 2022 lows, it's tiny. Um, and it's surprisingly low. So it's surprising, in my opinion, how few people were buying the lows. Now, you know, you would forgive the uh, the part-time investor for, for missing that, you know, not least because 
the media at the time was full of, you know, everything's going to zero. But there's plenty of grown-up fund managers, I think, who missed that, and they, they shouldn't have done. And I saw the my personal interpretation of the July to October correction just now was, well, you know, if you manage money professionally and you miss the 2022 bottom, you need a do-over and you need another window of weakness within which to buy. You know, and hey, presto, by amazing coincidence, along comes along between July and October, uh, during which volumes are really high. So I, I think any sort of surprise upside reaction, I, I, my interpretation is it's one of, you know, f it's too easy to say FOMO. I don't really mean that. I mean, it's not fear of missing out. It's a fact that people should have been buying at the lows in 22 and didn't. Um, and if you didn't, and you saw the market run away from you in 23, then partly if you're an individual investor, but really and truly, if you're a professional investor, now you need to be concerned because you are going to get a hard time from your clients when it comes to the 23 performance review if you miss that low. You know, that low was a gift. It was a spike low, you know, and all the factors that could, that should have triggered you to buy. You should have been listening to it. again. I'm not talking about uh, the average investor who is probably better suited to dollar cost averaging the S&P. I'm talking about professional money managers who should have known. And they missed it. So I think there's a degree of catch up going on here, which is I didn't buy when I should have been buying. I'd better buy now because if it does keep going, I'm going to look an idiot. And I'll get away with it this year because, well, it was a spike low in 22 and everyone can explain that away. But next year, if it keeps going up, I won't get away with it. So I need to buy. So I would see it as that, which is a sort of retrospective correction for action that should have been taken a year ago. I'm curious because of your experience in the markets and, and managing money and, and looking at people managing money. Um, and I know that we're all fallible people and, you know, who, who are we if not full of mistakes? But in terms of in general, like money managers missing that, would you say that's being too conservative? Would you say it's not believing enough? What, what would you point it to? Would it, would it be just kind of like loss of the uh, thing that they should be focused on? I think it's very easy to get caught up in um, a crowd mindset and a, a discipline. I think that it's really helpful to develop is switch off Bloomberg, switch off CNBC. Don't read, um, you know, fantastical headlines that come your way, good or bad. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a big banner in Bloomberg today that says, should you buy Bitcoin at 40K? Uh, what you need to know. And, and, and you know, you could have bought Bitcoin at 15. One, and I'm, we don't cover Bitcoin. I don't care for what lies beneath. But but as a matter of fact, you know, if you wanted to buy Bitcoin, you could have bought it at 15K a year ago. You could have bought it at 25K in September. But now there's a flood of media stories going, well, maybe you should buy it at 40. And, and it's that kind of thing. That I think it's really easy for people to get caught up into, both on the upside and the downside. So you go back and you look at um, any kind of even grown-up financial media in late 22, it was all miserable, right? Um, and, and I'm not just talking about, you know, mad money and stuff that, you know, retail consume. I'm talking about professional money manager uh, websites and publications and news and, you know, general sentiment uh, was incredibly negative in 22. But if you step back from the, uh, from the crowd and you just calmly can look at price, and that's easier in some environments than other. And the more senior you get, the easier it is for you to do that. And also the less that your world depends on next quarter's bonus, the easier it is to do that. But if you just step back and look at price, most technical indicators would have told you that, um, for instance, the COVID low was a spike low and you could buy that, that the 2021 high was a 
pretty serious high in the market and you ought to be at least lightening up and, may, and, and maybe going short. But, but if, even if you can't go short, you should be lightening up into cash. And they would have told you that the 2022 lows that were tested, you, you know, I mean, the S&P basically went sideways from April. It looked like it sold all year, but it didn't. It went sideways from April to April, 20, April 22, to April 23, and then it took off. The spike lows down that were hit in October, retested in uh, December and January, Again, you had a triple test of the lows there that uh, you know, I wouldn't expect one of my distant relatives who you know, isn't an investor to spot those things. But, but, but a professional money manager should spot those things and should have the confidence to invest as a result. And I think that we had a, a big swirling cloud of negative emotion last year that meant people couldn't see clearly. And I would see the beginnings of a big swirling cloud of positive emotion at the moment that's going to stop people from thinking clearly. And so if you look at the S&P and the NASDAQ right now, if, 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 if you were buying those at the lows last year, and let's say you finished buying by around, you know, April, May this year, now is when you are in the, the Wyckoff so-called markup zone, which is where you sit back, do nothing, and you let other people mark up the value of your portfolio as they rush in and buy these things late. So, you, you know, your greatest friend right now, if your timing was good, is late money. And so, you know, when I see articles like that, you know, is, is Bitcoin at 40k a good idea? And again, no position on Bitcoin one way or the other. But that kind of article, that entices late money into a market. So I, I think what happened in 22 was everyone got drowned in bearish sentiment. And if you couldn't step back and get clarity on price action, you suffered because you couldn't ever become confident enough to buy. And what we will see, as with any market top, whenever the next market top of is, whether that's in three months or in, in a, you know, two years, who knows? But whenever that top comes, we'll see the same thing, which is it's always going to go up forever. And, and the key, as always, as everybody knows, but it's very hard to practice, key is to step back and take a cold, hard look at price action. And the, 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 your best friend here as well is find a method of technical analysis that works for you. You know, it isn't voodoo. It isn't nonsense. Um, you have to find a really simple set of tools that work for you. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of them. If it helps you call major market pivots to the up and the downside, that's just fine. And find them and use them because that's a much better um, gauge of what to do than anything you'll see on the TV. Those are some golden nuggets uh, for, for those listening. Um, and those interested, follow along at Sestrian Capital Research. That's uh, Alex's team at Seeking Alpha, where you can find their free articles. And he runs Growth Investor Pro, which is his investing group on Seeking Alpha. A lot more golden nuggets if you want to seek them out in those two places. Alex, really appreciate you coming back on. Happy for you to share the last few words if you want Um for investors listening, for market watchers, observers, or anything else you want to share with our audience? Well, Rena, always a pleasure. So thank you once again for the invite. Um, I, first of all, I'd encourage people to use Seeking Alpha to its fullest degree. Uh, as an incredible set of tools on the platform, um, much more so than you'll find in, in most other places. There's great quantitative analysis tools. Uh, Seeking Alpha runs its own analytics services, um, Alpha Picks, a bunch of other things that are really useful and take a really cold, hard view on the markets, free of emotion. So I'd first of all, encourage people to, to do that. Um, secondly, uh, obviously, I would uh, ask people to take a look at our profile on the Seeking Alpha site. Uh, we run a number of uh, lines there. You can read a ton of our stuff for free. We run a, a very, very low cost basic tier of service that will cost you $99 for the first year. 
and we run a, a really full real-time um, service, full tier of Growth Investor Pro. We cover 50, 60 stocks, a bunch of ETFs. You get trade disclosure alerts, real-time chat, all of that. Um, so, it, you know, if you don't already, go and spend some time on the Seeking Alpha site and hopefully you'll find your way to our profile and you'll find something you can buy from us as well. That's what I would say. Agreed. Echo all those points. Appreciate it, Alex. Looking forward to the next time we talk. Any articles discussed today, you can find links to them on our show notes. And all episodes have transcripts available on Seeking Alpha. And for those wanting to follow breaking news and general news coverage of the markets, come listen with us at Wall Street Breakfast. We have morning episodes released before 7 a.m. Eastern and afternoon episodes released around 12 noon Eastern. We've got Wall Street Breakfast and Wall Street Lunch for all your market news needs. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.